Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, dictated is almost always the case. During my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, today is Tuesday, June 30th. And this is episode 231 of the Survival Podcast. As we cruise on down the road together once again as friends on a commute. And I don't know where or when you listen to my show, but to me, this is our discussion on my morning drive. And I thank you for sharing it with me wherever and whenever you do so. All right. So today's show is going to be another listener call-in show. Or not like a call-in, a listener question show. Can't have you calling in while I'm driving down the road. The reason I said that, though, is I want to do a call-in show tomorrow. I've got quite a bit of uh, audio from calls in my audio folder at home on my hard drive. Uh, I haven't screened those calls yet, so tomorrow I'm going to have to screen the calls before I do, because tomorrow I'm going to broadcast from the house. Um, So this is a call-out to you today. If you want to be on that show tomorrow, um, make a great call-in question uh, by dialing 866-65-THINK, and uh, you'll stand a good chance of getting on that show. So I'll be weeding through them to... Pick out six to nine questions that I can answer from uh, from good callers. We'll see how that works out. Again, the number to call in, 866-65-THINK. So today I'm just going to be telling you what the questions I've been sent by email or that showed up on the forum or the blog and giving you my answers to them. Uh, before I do that, though, let's go ahead and do some housekeeping. Uh, number one, make sure, as always, you're supporting our advertisers. They go a long way to support the site. All of my advertisers on my site are personal endorsements for me, meaning I'm willing to spend my money with them before I ask you to, meaning they go before my advertising uh, advertiser guidance council, uh, which is the moderators on the forum. We have about 30 moderators on the forum now. And every time an advertiser sticks their hand up and says, I want to be on your site, first they got to get past me. And if I think they're okay and I'm willing to, to, to back them, then I put them in front of the ad council. And um, these, the, the moderators on the forums aren't paid guys. They're just listeners like you that, that, that give their time and effort to help keep the forum going. So they are your representatives. And if two out of those 30, just two, say, I don't want this guy on the side. I think he's bad news. There's a reason. Whatever it is, they don't get on. So they are personal endorsements. On that note, our advertiser of the day is Ready-Made Resources. Uh, suggest you check those guys out. They are good folks over there and uh, support. You know, locked into supporting the show uh, for for half a year. So that's a big commitment for a first step for an advertiser. So I really appreciate that. Show them some love. Uh, next, Region Six, Shannon Appleby's putting together kind of a get together thing going on up there. You can find out more in the forum about the Region Six get together and get in touch with Shannon. And uh, he's trying to make that thing uh, take off with a with a bang instead of a flop. Uh, we haven't had much luck putting together a regional get together so far uh, due to a combination of circumstances. Uh, next, 
Uh, if you think you get more than 25 cents in value when we spend our 30 to 40 to 50 minutes together every day per episode, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, the next thing I want to tell you before I move on to the show topics is I am going on vacation. Uh, vacation will begin Thursday. It will end Monday, which means there will be no show Thursday or Friday this week. And there will probably, probably be no show on Monday next week. Uh, I don't like doing that to my audience. I like to be here every day. First question today is going to talk a little bit about why I feel that way. Um, but everybody needs to vacation, and I need to unwind. And broadcasting from uh, Arkansas right now, not going to be the easiest thing to do, nor would it be beneficial to my health while I'm going away for a vacation with my wife for me to be working. That could get me hit on top of the head uh, with a large blunt instrument, uh, which I do not wish to uh, have happen to my cranium because that might damage my brain, and then that would damage what I'm able to do for you. So I will be devoting that time to my wife. So let's get on with it. Um, first question is not really a survival question, but I think that it is a survival question because it will help people that maybe have this goal create a business model of their own, a brand of their own, uh, an income source of their own. And it really won't matter whether you want to be a podcaster or not. I think this this will help you because uh, it can be applied to any business that you would go into, especially an Internet-based business today. Um, somebody just basically said, I'm thinking about starting up a podcast similar to what you're doing, survival and preparedness. I'm going to do it weekly. Uh, what, what is your advice to a new podcaster? Okay, first of all, my first piece of advice, and you're not going to like it, and most of the people that ask me about podcasting don't like this advice, and I'm sorry, uh, but if you ask a, a guy that, um, a, a baseball player, that hits home runs all the time, how to swing a bat, he tells you this is part of your swing, and you say, I don't like that part of your swing, he, he really can't help you any further until you swing the way he tells you to, right? Well, I'm going to tell you the way that I swing my bat with this podcast is I do it daily. And I believe it is 90% of what has made the show effective today. A daily podcast in a, in a subject that was being under-addressed, a topic that was being just not enough material out there about it in podcast format that was available every day on a wide variety of subject matter that apply to it. So do it every day. The guy that asked me said he only has time to do it every week. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it every week. Just you shouldn't do a weekly show. If that's all you can do, and there's a lot of shows out there that are weekly shows, but they've grown a lot slower than this one has. They have a lot harder time attracting advertiser money. They have a lot less, I don't know what I would call it, less of a relationship with their audience. Because they don't spend as much time together. All right? I'm telling you, if you want to be successful as a podcaster, I don't care if it's audio or video. I don't care if you just want to be a blogger and you don't even do audio or video, you just do text. you got to do it every day. If you don't do it every day, you're not going to have a maximum effect. Again, it doesn't mean you don't do it, but... You know, and the, the second piece of advice, and this is not self-preservation, if you're thinking about going into podcasting and you listen to this show, it would be an obvious step to do a show on preparedness and survivalism, right, and homesteading and things like that. If, that's, if that is your passion, 
your biggest passion in life, fine, join me. I'll help you promote your show. I'll tell people about your show. I'll come on your show as a guest. I'll have you on my show as a guest. I, you know, I don't think that, let's say, I don't know, Glenn Beck and Bill O'Reilly see each other as enemies. They see each other as friends. They're on the same side of the fence. They're on the same networks, right? And, and they promote each other, okay? That's the relationship I offer anybody coming into this industry. But what I have to say next is think long and hard before you decide what you want to do is survivalism and preparedness. The beauty of today with podcasting is you can do a show on anything. So unless it's your biggest passion, pick something else. And if you can find something you're passionate about that no one's doing a daily show about, you have an audience waiting for you. So it might be that you specialize in some piece of survival and preparedness that's being under-addressed right now that would branch out in a bigger tent than just, you know, the survival brand. All right? So I could see a real place for a show, a daily show, believe it or not, that's all about small livestock, different varieties, different ways, different methodologies, all those different things. All right? I see a place for that show. It exists. And that's just one example. There could be a show that is, there's so many gun podcasts out there. I, but I haven't looked, so I don't know. But I don't know if there's a reloading podcast discussing different bullets, velocities, project. I mean, there's people that are into that. If that's your passion, go there. If your passion, right, is painting houses, if that's your pat, do a painting houses podcast. If your passion is golf, do a golf podcast. But if you can find a passion matching an underserved market, that's a home run. All right. Next thing, screw your audio quality. All right. Don't worry about your freaking audio quality to a degree. All right. When I started the show, it was abysmal. It was terrible. I still think my audio quality sucks because I'm in a car. The content. The quality of the content trumps the quality of the audio. There are so many of these podcasters, I talk to people all the time, that, you know, they use this mixer and blah, 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 and they have this, you know, DP, all this, you know, like if they're video, they got all this high-end video equipment, and they have thousands of dollars into their audio setup. And some of them have over 10000 into a video setup. And they're worried about every little scratch and niche and, and, and vibration and you know if they have a guest they can't stand that that guest calls in on a cell phone because it might have an interruption screw that focus on the quality of your content bring your passion with you every day and that's how you build any business my last advice for podcasters I, I, i'm not big on things like uh what is it uh blog talk radio and things like that they're a great way to get a start you don't have to have any technical knowledge or anything but i would say learn the technical knowledge or hire someone to set up a system for you own your brand don't build somebody else's brand build your brand i don't care again if you're a blogger an affiliate marketer i don't care what you are if you're building a business online today screw anybody else's brand right that doesn't mean you damage anybody else's brand, but screw building anybody else's brand Right from your very existence. Sponsors, build their brand. Tell people how great they are. Take great sponsors. Let your audience tell you who your sponsor should be. Turn down a sponsor. I don't care how much money they offer you if they suck. 
right? And that's that's fine to build their brand, but by your existence. And what I mean by your existence is, if I did this show on Blog Talk Radio, on day one I had no brand, they had brand. I would have got, I would have gained something by having their brand next to mine. But by now, they're gaining for me. I would be building the Blog Talk Radio brand, or the Blueberry brand, or any of these other you know podcast networks. I'm telling you, own your own brand. It's the most valuable thing you'll ever create for yourself. And I don't care if you sell tires on a website about tires and you never talk to anybody. You do it the same way. Build who you are. Right? It'll take longer, but it'll have a hell of a lot more capital. The brand of this show and the brand of my name now matters. And it matters more because I didn't bicurfurate it between me and somebody else's network. And then that will give you complete control over what you do. That's my other thing. Have your own base your revenue model. AdSense, I've made a lot of money in AdSense in my life, guys. All right, Affiliate marketing, plenty of money I've made off of that. But have something you sell direct to your audience, whether it's a membership, a product, uh, a spe- something special, whether you're selling advertising directly, control your revenue stream. I used to make a hell of a lot more money in AdSense. AdSense made a couple changes. This is a Google product to display advertising on your site for those that don't know. They made a couple changes. I had a month where I made $4,000 off of one site. They made a small change that was supposed to be in my best interest, and my earnings dropped by over 50% because they controlled the situation. If you're going to go into business today, all these little affiliate programs and advertising revenue and all the stuff that's out there, they're a good start, they're a learning to, but build tool, but build your own brand. All right, so that didn't sound like a survival question, but trust me, if you want to start a business, um, and that's a good way to be a survivor today, that's some good advice. Next question, can you win by holding debt during an inflationary period? Sure you can. You can win the lottery, too. Doesn't mean you should play it with a lot of money. And let's be fair to the guy that asked the question. He was very specific to the type of debt he was talking about. Basically, what he's saying is, if I had a house, I owed $150,000 on my house. And I had $150,000 in cash. I would probably be better off right now to continue to make payments on the mortgage, assuming that I can, and keep the cash or invest the cash in something else than to pay the house to zero. Because if hyperinflation kicks in, then the cost of that $150,000 relative to income descends. In other words, if inflation goes through the roof and it costs me five bucks to buy a bottle of Pepsi, $150,000 doesn't buy what it used to. My debt is deflated based on the inflation of the economy. Make sense? I hope so. I can't go much deeper than that today. That's how it works in a perfect world where everything inflates together. But during a long depression, which is what some people are forecasting right now, and I haven't ruled it out. In fact, I see a long depression. I just see a big bump in the middle in next year. Next year, and maybe one year more, I see this bump, and then I see a bigger crash coming. That's my estimation, but I could be wrong. All right? When you have these recession cycles, you have, one, deflation. That's big time in the real estate market right now. The cost of real estate has been driven down. So what happens is you hold the debt, 
and then you end up upside down against the debt. So that $140,000 house that you owed $150,000 on, right, or uh, I'm sorry, $160,000 house you owed $150,000 on, now becomes a $100,000 house you owe $150,000 on, you can't get rid of it. You're stuck. Now, assuming that you still have the cash, because you don't tie the, the cash up into another um, investment vehicle that locks it up, at least you have the option to get out. You can spend the money then, but again, you invite Murphy into your life. He shows up and he kicks you in the balls. All right? So that's what you're doing in that situation. Now, it can work. Let me give you a perfect example. My father-in-law moved to Mansfield about 20 years ago. It, it, my, you know, my wife and her sisters and everybody was out of the house by then. They bought a little house. Um, I don't know what they paid for it. They didn't pay very much because it was 20 years ago, and it was a new developing area. And you know, they weren't senior citizens yet. But the day he became a senior citizen, um, Mansfield has this ordinance that if you're living in Mansfield when you become a senior citizen, your property tax rates lock in. So those two things in combination means that this guy today has a nice little three-bedroom house, and his total house payment, taxes and all, are $262. That is the effect of inflation against the debt, because when it used to be $262 20 years ago, it was you could go out and buy any house anywhere of that size and shape and format with that payment. But it took 20 years for that. And ten, within 10 years, trust me, this guy was living large because we had the big real estate run-up during that period. So it can happen. But the other edge of the sword will cut you, too. And the problem during a... I guess what you call stagflation period, which is what we may answer, which is where we have a repressed economy and you have inflation at the same time. So we put too much money in the economy, hyper or you know at least excessive inflation kicks in, and the cost of consumer goods starts to go up because the money is devalued. Doesn't always spread to every commodity in the economy. All right? What do I mean by that? A lot of times you have inflation that affects consumer goods, oil, gas, energy, all the stuff that you buy every day to survive. But the value of real property is then inflated along with it when it's due to a recession coupled with an influx of capital. Right? So if you have a slow, steady inflation, which is what they consider a healthy economy, by the way, then real estate appreciates with the with the with the market. It goes up and up and up and it steps up commensurate or often it exceeds the inflation rate. So inflation's like four percent when they lie to us, and maybe it was eight percent over a period of time if we told the truth. But real estate in that period of time might go up twenty, twenty five percent or more. So that is where you can beat it with holding debt. Because the because then you have equity created by the appreciation of the value of the property. There is no other way that it works out in your favor. Right now, I don't see that happening. So I would only incur debt on long-term assets that you believe you can pay for, no matter what happens to you. And if I had the choice of paying my house off cash, uh, right now I probably would. And my hope is that because I have so much equity in my home, even with this depressed market, because I built my asset portfolio that way, that 
I can use this bump next year, or even if it's flat next year, I could do it now if my wife would let me. And I could sell out. We pull the equity out. We roll on up to Arkansas, and uh, we pay off that house which left the owed on it, which isn't much. And we put some money in the bank. That's our that's our plan. Now, plans never usually work out exactly the way that they're laid out, but that's what we're planning to do. And that's the only reason I'm not trying to make extra payments on my house in, our, in, in Texas right now, because I plan on selling it in a year. And that's still probably a mistake, folks. I would still probably be better off putting more money into the home, um, but I've just made a calculated estimate at this time. So let's go take the next question. Guy asked me, what about a boat as a bug-out location? If you had a boat, say you live near a river or deep water or, you know, ocean or something, you put your boat there, put in a boat slip, what have you, stock it up, and uh, if the shit hits the fan, go jump on your boat, sail away. I think it's a great idea. I think it has limitations you're going to have to deal with, and living on a boat always comes with limitations, but lots of people do it. The problem is you have a finite storage capacity. You can only store so much food. Uh, you, you can go fishing from a boat, obviously, but you can't guarantee yourself you're going to be able to harvest food. You're going to have very limited ability to, uh, to produce food. You could probably set up a, a lot of grains and seeds for sprouting on your boat. Uh, you're going to need to make sure you make uh, an allowance for fresh water. Uh, odds are that you won't be sailing away from a situation unless you're on a large body of water that connects to salt water. So you have that issue as well. But overall, I, I think it's a great idea. It's a great concept. And in everything except the total desolation of everything, it may be one of the best options out there if you can swing it. And what I mean by the total desolation of everything is hopefully you can sail somewhere else and resupply. But if the, the country is completely shot, right, the economy goes into that complete death spiral, then where are you going to go? I mean, all these little islands around here, these uh, Southern Pacific Islands, uh, not Southern, I'm sorry, like the, the Caribbean, let's say the Caribbean Islands, you know, I don't think people realize how dependent on the U.S. those islands are, and how that paradise could turn into its own form of a, of a rat hole the minute all the money gets cut off. Um, and if we have all that going on, you know, Europeans are going to probably choose to stay in Europe and not bring their money in either. Uh, and if we have a global catastrophe, then you can't even sail across the, the ocean, and that's a pretty big undertaking for, you know, the kind of boat I expect that most people would own. So there's those limitations. But if you have a boat that's capable of, let's say, sailing from uh, the Gulf Coast of Florida to the Gulf Coast of Texas uh, and being relatively well supplied during that trip, that may be a really good, uh, a really good idea. And, uh, you know, then you have a boat as well, and that's like your second home, vacation home, what have you, and you have it as an asset, and you kind of have that, you know, ability to kind of just cruise on out and take a vacation on your own anytime. Just don't go into a bunch of debt for it. That's that's my only suggestion. And my other suggestion is, and some people may not agree with this, I think a sailboat's a much better idea than a motorboat. And most of the sailboats have little motors on them for moving around in slips and stuff like that. But um, if you have a sailboat and you're a skilled sailor, you can get somewhere no matter what goes on. Good sailors can even sail almost into the wind. So, you know, you just have that advantage. You don't have as, as much to uh, to need from land because you don't need, uh, you know, fuel. So there you go. There's my thoughts on a boat as a bug-out location. 
Next thing, uh, it's not really a question. Guy just wanted to let me know. He has a friend who runs a business. And he's cut his spending like many businesses have. Of course, he's, like most businessmen, he uses an Amex as a way of making payments and uh, managing expenses. And it's, it's a pretty good method as far as I'm concerned because if you're using an Amex, it's probably the one credit card I don't absolutely hate because they send you a bill for the full balance at the end of every month, at least if you have the kind of card where they do that. And that I'm okay with. You pay a membership fee and, and you know, you go on about your way. And for uh, a lot of things that you would do in business, it may be a, a great way to do things. I don't have one anymore. I uh, don't even want one of them, but I understand why a lot of business people would. Well, here's what's funny. Uh, since he stopped spending so much money, um, his average spending lowered, I guess, is what they meant. So he had his account frozen. They froze his account because he wasn't spending enough money. So they were concerned that that would be an alarm that he was in financial trouble and may not make the payment at the end of the month, I guess, is probably what was going on there. So when he phoned them up, instead of saying, you know, well, provide us some documentation on how you're managing your expenses so that we know that you are financially stable and you're just spending less money, which I could have understood that. I, I know some people would say that doesn't, you know, that doesn't seem right or whatever. But no, it's, a, it's, a, it's your creditor. If I'm allowing you to run up, let's say, $5,000 of expense every month, and all of a sudden your expenses drop to $2,000, it is indeed a warning sign that something may be wrong. And for me to turn to you and say, as your creditor, I'd like to see a balance sheet or what have you, that would make sense. But that's not what Amex did. No. They said, well, all you have to do is start spending more money again. What? What? See, this is why we're screwed, people. This is why I call people sheep. All right? The people with that policy at Amex are imbeciles. They're complete, total, freaking imbeciles. And for the person on the phone, this is the CSR, customer service rep, to give that answer with a straight face, you know, not laugh when she said it and realize how stupid it is, she's a sheep. I'm sorry. There's no other word for this. Because you're just doing what the script says, following along. I mean, how asinine is that? To not say, let me see if I can put you further up the chain, and this doesn't make any sense. No, no, just follow the sheep. You know, follow the shepherd, Amex shepherd, and, you know, just spend more money and everything will be okay. I... So I'm worried that, now I'm your creditor, I'm like, I'm worried that you have some financial problems. But if you'll just start spending more money and extending your credit further back to where it used to be, I won't worry about it anymore. I, God, people, let's take another question before I get angry and go on a tangent. Okay, this guy actually fired three questions at me, but they're easy, quick questions to answer, so I'm going to answer all three. Number one, he said... He's uh, planted some boxes along his fence. Some spots are kind of shaded, some aren't. He's planted a variety of things. Beans are still going strong, climbing up the fence, producing like crazy, but his peas have petered out, and no more peas. And he said, is it too late to plant another crop of peas? Fortunately, I was able to answer that question because he had a phone number and his signature with a 214 area code. That means he's local to my area in Dallas. So I can give you a very specific answer, but it probably would be the same in most of the country right now except for the date I'm going to give you. It is not too late to plant a second crop of peas. It is too early 
to plant a second crop of peas. Peas are a cool weather vegetable, and it is way too hot in Dallas-Fort Worth right now to plant peas. If you plant peas right now, uh, they'll, they'll, they might sprout. It might get too hot. It might kill them in the ground. But if they do sprout, they're going to get burned and scorched, and they're not going to do well. They're not going to produce. They're going to get sick because it's too freaking hot for peas. You should plant peas between September 15th to the 30th in this zone. And the way I got those dates is I went to FarmersAlmanac.com, entered my zip code, and then looked at planting dates. So that's when you want to plant it. If you want to do a second crop of peas, plant them in September. Next question, he said, what about plant? He's got some shaded areas. So what about blackberries and raspberries in the shade? Um, Blackberries and raspberries tend to do better with, with more sun. Uh, they're not the greatest shade-growing plants out there. They'll do okay. Like, we used to pick wild blackberries all the time, and you'd always find them at the edge where they got a lot of solar exposure. I, I guess this is what I would suggest, though. Right now, there's a lot of blackberry and raspberry plants available in the DFW area. I've seen them at garden centers. It's probably why you're thinking that way, where you can buy them, and they're, they're nice shape. There's some really nice plants out there, a lot of green on them, growing strong, and they're in nice buckets with great soil that was mixed up at their nursery that's got everything that they need in it. Put, don't plant them yet. Take those pots, water them every day because they have a limited amount of water to be able to hold. Put them where you're thinking of planting them and give them some time and see how they do there. If they start to have a negative response, move them to a you know higher solar exposure. Find an optimum for them before you plant them. There's no rush to put them in the ground once you own them. They've been in that pot a long time already. They can stay there another few months. So determine your planting area by moving them around and see how they do. And if you find out that it's kind of a bad area and they're not getting enough sun and they're not going to like it, it's really easy to pick the pot up and move them. It's a hell of a lot harder to dig them up out of the ground after they've started to establish a root system. All right? And then the next one he has, this is an easy one, folks. That's why I did all three of them for him. He says he's got tomatoes, getting tomatoes this year, no problem. But as soon as they start to turn orange, birds start pecking holes in them. Uh, very common, very simple solution. The second your tomato starts to get just a hint of color, just a little bit of reddish-orange on the shoulders, Pick it, stick it up on top of your refrigerator. If your refrigerator gets a little bit of sunlight, if not, use a countertop. Put them somewhere rather warm where they get a little bit of sunlight. Not a lot. Don't leave them sitting out in the sun. You'll make a dried green tomato if you do that. Just somewhere with, you know, inside a house, 70 degrees, 80 degrees. The way we keep our house with air conditioning is a great area. A little bit of solar exposure, three to four days, it'll turn the rest of the color. It'll ripen up. It'll taste just as sweet if you picked it fully ripe off the vine. And the birds won't start messing with until it, it turns quite a bit more. So look for that, that rosy hue to start the show. Yank the tomato off. Take it inside. Birds won't eat it. It'll ripen for you. All nice, safe, and secure in your house. Next guy, uh, guy asked me a question. Says he's going to move. What's advice on selecting a new bank and finding out who owns it? Uh, it's a great question. Great. I would have never came up with that if somebody didn't send that in to me. But it is a great question, something we've been through a couple times in our moves. Number one, you want to use a local or regional bank. The smaller, as far as I'm concerned, the better. 
because they're going to have more control uh, by the people that actually own, operate, run, and started and founded the bank than a large, giant conglomerate that's, you know, trying to please Wall Street. So screw BOA, you know, screw Wells Fargo, all these giant banks, that is not where I would hold my money. The bank that I use in Texas is Frost Bank. It's a very strong regional bank. It's a little bit bigger than I would like it to be. But this is how it happened. I started banking with a bank called Arlington Bank in Arlington, Texas. There were four branches. That was it. That was all. Um, Fortunately, most of the people that worked at the branch that I opened my account with are still there. That is the most important thing is your relationship with the banker himself, the loan officer, the accounts people. You want a relationship with a human being who you know on a first-name basis at your bank. All right. The way I ended up with a bank that's bigger than I would like is it was Arlington Bank, then a company called Summit Bank, which was a kind of a mid-sized regional player, but they were all right, came in and bought them. And then Frost came in and bought up Summit. We just decided it's not worth moving, and the people are still there. But if I came to the area today, I would probably find a smaller bank. But how do you find out who owns the bank? Walk into a branch physically or pick the phone up and call them if you're not there yet and ask them, who owns you? Are you independent? Do you own yourself? Are you part of a conglomeration? Is is your parent company publicly traded or private? I want a private company. I don't want these public companies. Not for holding my money. Absolutely freaking not. Their duty is to return a dividend to the shareholders. All right? On Wall Street, under Wall Street rules. So pick the phone up and ask. Then, when you're getting ready to open up an account, go in and talk to the account specialist at one or two or three of the banks that are you know local to that area, small, suits your taste. Talk to them. Make your decision based on the people. Ask, how long have you worked here? If it's like three weeks, can I talk to somebody else? No disrespect, right? No offense intended, but I would really like to talk to somebody that's been here, let's say, three, four, five years, right? And, and I want to get an understanding of the people at your bank. And it's, it, you know, if I was just throwing together a little statement, but I'm gonna, this is a long-term relationship I'm starting. Could I talk to somebody with a little more tenure? If they don't have anybody with more tenure, they, they might even say, "Come back tomorrow, Susie will be here," or whatever. They don't have that. I'll scratch them off the list. Okay, Again, because I want the relationship with the person holding the purse strings. If I ever need credit, I want my name to matter beyond my numbers. So interview them like that, find the relationship, and open your account that way. You'll be a lot happier. And uh, you'll, you'll get treated differently from day one as well, even if you don't have a lot of money in the bank. Next question, um, Guy says there, it has a whole bunch of questions on EMP, and I guess I'm going to do a show on EMP or electromagnetic pulse, uh, protection, hardening, all that good stuff. There's a lot of information out there about it. I can do it easily do a full show on it. But I thought I'd answer this one question because I have some specific knowledge about it. He says, are diesel vehicles really less susceptible to EMP? If so, why? Yes, they are. If... They're not like mine. And here's what I mean. My diesel Jetta has all kinds of computers and electronics and crap going on in it um, that are necessary for the functioning of the vehicle. It's a very high-end engineered piece of equipment. And 
all that electronics is just as susceptible to EMP burst as anybody else's electronics. So my vehicle would have a lot of problems. It would probably be easier to uh, to do some um, creative engineering, do some jumping things. I could jump the glow plugs by bypassing everything, and I could probably still get my vehicle to start because I was a diesel mechanic in the Army. If anybody's ever wondered what I actually did in the Army, that's what I was. I was a diesel mechanic. And I know kind of some things and some shenanigans I could pull to get it running, and I probably could, but there's no guarantee. And I guarantee you parts, it wouldn't function the way it's supposed to. There's a lot of computer engineering in this car that could get just as fried as anybody's gas car. Now, the reason an older diesel vehicle is less susceptible is there's very little electrical activity going on. Basically, the electrical activity is to turn the starter. Right, and then there's a generator that charges the battery back. And that's that's pretty much it. And then there's power that's sent, a very low amount of power from the battery to something called the glow plugs. And the glow plug's not even necessary when it's warm. It's helpful but not necessary. And the older vehicles, you know, you turn the key halfway and you'd see a little light. And when that light came on, that meant that the glow plugs were hot enough and then you went ahead and turned it the rest of the way and it would start the vehicle. A diesel engine doesn't use electricity while it's running. A gasoline engine does. More even without like even the older gas vehicles have more things that can get fried, the distributor caps and things like that. A diesel vehicle works by compressing air. That's once it's in motion, right? It, 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 the explosions keep it going. And there's nothing that fires except when the when the when the cylinder compresses the uh, when the piston compresses the air in the cylinder, the high level of compression, the air gets so hot that the, as the diesel fuel is pushed into the cylinder, it explodes from the heat of the air alone. So that's one of the big reasons that's there. But older gas vehicles you could probably get to run. I don't want to run off on this topic because I'm running out of time. I'm getting close to the office. Um, but let me just say there's a lot of things you can do to protect even a newer vehicle with grounding and things like that. We'll talk about that in an upcoming show. But if you've ever wondered what makes a diesel less susceptible, not impervious, but less susceptible, it's less electronics that are needed to actually run the motor. Um, Another guy asked me, what do I think an initial breakdown would look like, and where would it start? Um, I think it's most likely to start in the big cities. I think it would actually be fueled by the government initially, and they would hope it didn't run away from them. And they would use it as another crisis to try to get more things done, which is what the Obama chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, believes you do with crises. You use them to get things done. If it was for an unorchestrated reason, in other words, it wasn't a plan, it wasn't a, a government sh- you know, shill thing, um, I think it depends on the crisis. I really can't answer that question specifically because it would probably start wherever the crisis was most acutely felt. So if we lost power, for instance, uh, the bigger cities would be a logical place to start to see the breakdown occur. But if we had really bad weather events that started to starve out the farmers before the food surplus that's in storage ran out, then it would be more likely to happen in rural areas.
happen in rural areas. So there's no one answer to that question. The big thing is you keep your situational awareness high. You pay attention to what's going on around you. Um, you know, if it's a pandemic, if it's a flu, well, obviously the breakdown's going to happen wherever it rages first. So if, if the flu really flares up bad and starts killing people off this fall in Dallas, well, then the breakdown's going to start in Dallas. And what it's going to look like is going to have a hell of a lot to do with the government's response to it. How heavy-handed they are. If they're too heavy-handed, it's going to blow back. If they're not controlling enough, they don't keep people calm, then it's going to you know, spiral as well. There's a delicate balancing act to do there. Uh, that's really all I can say on that. The next uh, question a guy says, what do you do for protection when you care, go to states that don't allow you to carry? He says, specifically with me, when I go to California for dirt time in August, I won't be able to carry my, my handgun because they won't recognize, obviously, in the, the communist state of California, they don't recognize my concealed carry permit from Texas. Um, I won't carry a gun. It's as simple as that. I'll be without it. Um, I do carry pepper spray uh, on my keychain. I'll continue to do that. Uh, I'll keep my situational awareness up. And uh, you can always improvise with something like a walking stick. It is not ideal. I don't like not having the ability to carry my gun and have my constitutional rights stripped. Uh, but I'm also not going to end up in a California jail. That's just what I'm going to have to do when I'm out there. And the good people of California need to throw everybody out of your state government because they've already bankrupted your state. Now they're taking, you know, and, and they're taking your liberty at the same time. So you're not trading liberty for safety, which is bad enough. You're tra trading liberty for bankruptcy in California. Please, Californians, get rid of these people. Throw them the hell out of office. Not just the Democrats. All of them. Turn the legislature completely over. Start anew. It's the only way you guys are going to save that state. Uh, last question. Guy says, uh, what about small generator sets? You know, stuff 1,000 to 2,000 watt uh, output generators. Is there any place for them? Basically, he's got one. I think it was 1,200 watts. And he's like, you know, I really can't afford a bigger generator right now. Uh, is this helpful? And what can I do to maximize it? Number one, uh, bring into your home methods of cooling that require very little of electricity, i.e. cheap box fans from Walmart, because you can run those with your little generator set. And number two, bring methods of heating in to your home that don't require um, electricity at all. A kerosene heater, fireplace, coal stove, whatever you have available. But make sure you have a way to heat your home that's independent of electricity and make sure that you have at least some fans so if this happens, you know, something goes out in the, in the worst time of the year, she ain't going to run an air conditioner uh, with 1,200 watts. Next thing, um, have some extension cords already ready to go and know what you're going to run before you try to run it. Test it today. Don't wait till the power goes off. You can run things like a small microwave oven with a 1,200-watt generator. You're just going to have to shut everything else off while you run the microwave. So you might be able to pull out some Uncle Ben's uh, rice, uh, shut the lights off and everything else. And uh, In fact, you can keep a couple lights going while you ran your microwave because your microwave is going to draw most likely around six to 700 watts, a lot of the smaller microwaves. Look at the uh, wattage rating of anything you plan to run and do the math and determine whether it's going to work out. The nice thing about that small generator set is if you have like 10 gallons gasoline around it, and you're going to run it on and off here and there, that'll keep you going for a long time. 
It's going to be very quiet, less noticeable to other people, and uh, quite useful. Your big problem is losing your food in your freezer and your refrigerator. There are some of like the igloo coolers that uh, they run off of 12 volts. They're pretty energy efficient. They don't have a high draw. You might want to get one of those. They're pretty inexpensive. Um, and that would be another uh, pretty cool tool uh, to once, you know, your freezer and refrigerator are no, you leave them closed as long as you can after the power goes out. But once it starts to get warm in there, you can remove the most perishable items and uh, put them into that igloo thing and run that off your generator. And that would probably take you a long way uh, toward getting through the crisis. So that's the best advice they can offer you if all you have is a very small gen set. I would also say, though, you know, consider using your small gen set as a backup and eventually getting a bigger one. And you can get a pretty decent, like, 5,500-watt generator set uh, for around 600 bucks. So I, I know the guy that wrote this question and didn't have 600 bucks laying around, or he probably would have went out and done it. But understand that you don't need to, you know, buy a $4,000, you, know, uh, you know, automatic backup generator system uh, to have quite a bit of generator electrical generation uh, capability. Now, the thing is, you see on 5,500, 8,500-watt sets, these mid-range sets, they use a lot of gas. And our gas doesn't store well long-term anymore because our idiots put ethanol in it. All right? Even with st- stable in it, doesn't really bode well for long-term gasoline storage anymore. So, one, make sure you're putting stable in your gasoline. And I would say if you're storing, let's say, 20 gallons of gas for your gen set, or even 10, whatever it is, about once every month to two months, dump the gas in your vehicle and use it in your vehicle. And uh, fill the gas cans back up instead of filling the vehicle up that week or month or what have you. Make sure you definitely rotate your gasoline. And the biggest thing, I, again, I can say with generator sets is don't wait till the power goes off to try them. Go ahead today, push them, see what they'll run, see what they won't run, and know what your plan is and what equipment you're going to set up and run with them uh, when the power goes out before it happens. Be prepared like the Boy Scouts. Okay, well, folks, that really does wrap up another show, 44. Four minutes uh, we're into it, so I guess this is about the right length of time. I am currently at 121 in the tollway, just across from where I work, and uh, looking at the big IKEA building. So that means it is time to wrap the show up. I hope this show's been entertaining for you. I hope it's engaged you. I hope it's taken you on, you know, a variety of topics today, and that's what these shows are all about. I know some people love them, some people aren't that big into them, but I want you to understand that survivalism is a about a hell of a lot more than beans, bullets, and band-aids. And for instance, we started with a, a question today about setting up a business, basically, by doing a podcast or doing anything. And I gave you some some of my insight of being successful in business and what makes that work. That is a survival topic. And I don't care if you're building rocking chairs. The things I told you about that will help you have a better business building rocking chairs and building your brand up around of being the creator of those rocking chairs. Or if you want to do a podcast, just like mine, the same advice applies. That's definitely about creating more self-sufficiency, more sustainability, and more independence. And that's what this show's all about. I don't care if it's by growing tomatoes in your backyard, having an ability to produce backup power, storing some food, being smart with your finances, or being able to defend what you have and not have to dial 911 and wait 90, uh, 90 seconds would be a dream, 10 minutes for the police to show up while some 
madman ravages your house and perhaps your family. All of these things are about more sustainability, more capability, right? So take them, use them, make them part of not just what you do, but how you think. How you think is the most important part of your survival plan. And above all, remember, when you don't agree with my take on something, that's okay. You might even debate me and I might tell you you're wrong. It's still okay and it's okay for you to think that way. Your plan is what's most important, not mine. If you don't have ownership of your plan then you're not going to follow it. You're not going to believe it. You're not going to stick to it. So you stick to the things that you're passionate about and you believe it in your life. Just back them up with facts. Do your own research. Make your own decisions. And then when you put that plan in place, stick to it. Keep building it. Never stop. This is a lifestyle that you've entered into. And it's a better life than most people ever get a shot at. And you have a shot at it just because you decided to. That's how wonderful self-sufficient thinking really is you get the opportunity because you decided to take it so hold on to it stay strong stay with your plan believe in what you're doing and keep on listening to the show and i'll keep doing the best damn show i can from you for you every day sometimes it won't be my it won't be the best show that i've ever done they won't always get better but it'll always be the best that i have to give you that's my commitment to you this has been jack spirico with another edition of the survival podcast helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.